Hello and welcome to a special VentureBeat takeover of the What's Next podcast recorded live from Slush Conference in Helsinki. I'm Chris O'Brien, VentureBeat's European tech correspondent. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing the interviews captured in the Samsung Next podcast studio at Slush, the Nordic's biggest startup and VC event. Each week, we'll highlight conversations with people behind today's most groundbreaking innovations. Up next, you'll hear from Peter Vanderdoes, CEO of Adyen, the Amsterdam-founded payments platform that enables merchants to accept payments in a single system, enabling revenue growth online, on mobile devices, and at the point of sale. I'll walk through the history of the company with him, the challenges he faced since its launch back in 2006, and what the future looks like for the platform from here on out. Hi, and welcome to our podcast. This is Chris O'Brien. This afternoon, we have with us Peter Vanderdoes, co-founder and CEO of Adyen, uh, based in Amsterdam, but a global company and one of Europeans, I would say, one of Europe's really bigger entrepreneurial stories of the past decade. So welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you, and uh, great being here. So I want to talk just um, a little bit for uh, people who may have not heard this story or may not be overly familiar with the company. Um, just starting a little bit with your background uh, as an entrepreneur before you started this company, um, tell me a little bit about where you were and what you were doing uh, preceding Adyen. So uh, prior to Adyen, I, was, uh, I bought myself into a consultancy that turned itself into a payment company called Bebet. And uh, we, built, we built a nice payment company, had fantastic merchants uh, like Microsoft at the time. We had uh, Dell, and the, the, but the founders, uh, some of them wanted to exit. So we sold that company with the help of Lehman in 2004 to uh, WorldPay, uh, which was at the time owned by Royal Bank of Scotland. So my journey was from entrepreneur to selling the company and uh, working two years in a lockup for WorldPay RBS. Mm -hmm. uh, after those two years, I left, uh, went on a sabbatical for half a year, uh, lived with my family in Brazil. And from Brazil, I reconnected with uh, the other team members and uh, we decided to found out Yen. And so before I get into the founding, tell me a little, I'm just curious, tell me a little bit about that lockup period you know, how was it going from being a founder and entrepreneur and then, you know, working it to some degree inside a big uh, entity like that? Um, as many entrepreneurs, I found it frustrating uh, because the speed of execution suddenly is large company. But I'm, I'm actually really grateful for the, for the things I learned there. I, uh, it taught me how large banks deal with risk. And we, sh we, we took what was good, but we changed it to what's much better. But it's easier to change, to change a system with experience, uh, where bank do yearly review. We do continuous compliance. So it's a different way of looking at it, um, where banks monitor their exposure also on the yearly. We monitor our exposure constantly. So we've, but we, we took certain principles, so that I'm happy about. Um, I'm also happy about, about one of the lessons learned is banks think that you can acquire technology and that will make you up to par with other technology players. 
what you in essence do is you then have many different platforms which use different technology which don't really operate together you have risk exposure on many different technologies and you don't know what to do do you put your best people on the weakest platform because that is a threat to your name or do you put your best people on your best platform because that's where it's most promising and maybe that's the that's the payment system you want to develop further so my experience is we're not going to go through acquisitions and that's why Adyen has been very pure we do everything single platform we build everything ourselves no patchwork of systems interesting so let's go back though to the founding uh, and the name so you reconnected with some of your previous uh, uh, partners or founders from BitBit you decided yeah let's let's you you had slipped out of of the the death star so to speak and and we're ready to go back on your own so uh tell me about the name and about you know we're talking 2006 for the yep, official founding correct. so tell me about the founding and the name first but also what then did you see happening in the payment space right so the the two years that i worked for uh for rbs world pay it was so frustrating, but some lessons learned. Um, and when the lockup was over, I immediately uh, resigned. Um, not so much. I was good with everyone. And I think if you work for a company, you do your ultimate best because otherwise it's only a frustrating lifestyle. You're not going to work for somebody who pays your, your, uh, your salary and not work in the right direction. found it frustrating. And when I left um, and we regrouped, we were three people and we the first four people we hired were all from Bibit. So the first seven people in Adyen all shared that we worked for Bibit. When we were looking at the name, we all had different ideas. Um, ultimately, one of us had a partner who came from Suriname, uh, at least her uh, parents, and um, she came up with the name Adyen and we actually chose it as a temporarily name. The URL was for free, so that was great, because nobody thought, let's call my company Adyen. It had a nice mean, meaning, because it meant all over again, and we were seven people regrouping of the same, uh, of a firmer group, of a former group, and um, it was high in the alphabet, so if you have a list of payment companies, we would be on top. So as a temporarily name, we adopted Adyen to later come up with something better. And so, looking at that fintech space, I mean, you know, for my recollection coming from Silicon Valley, you know, a lot of the talk, of course, was PayPal, and then PayPal had been acquired by eBay. And that's really, you know, in 2006, what we were mainly looking at or thinking about in terms of uh, payments and things like that. What specifically at the beginning were you thinking uh, of in terms of an opportunity or a space that, you know, you could really move into? So the years which I, prior to Adyen, I saw that with our former company, there was a lot of innovation. And because we fell away, also our competitors took a step back and sort of got into coasting rather than You weren't innovate. all pushing each other anymore. No, the whole dynamic changed. So when I left, I never thought I would be back in payments. Uh, when I signed the lockup in 2004, in 2006, I thought, this is crazy. Everybody is is doing well but nobody's actually doing something really cool so when we when we started what the dream was is everybody was building cool layers over existing infrastructure but that's not truly making things better 
And we felt if we do not only build the front end, but also the piping, what's called in payments uh, the um, uh, being an acquirer, uh, so building such an acquirer platform and being a member of Visa, MasterCard, all that, we felt we could make something that truly outperforms. Um, so that's what, that, that's what we saw as an opportunity, uh, that we could build something which is better, works so better, what does that mean for a merchant? More authorizations. So online payment attempts unfortunately fail, but, and sometimes you don't know why. So be the company that's best at that and do it on an international level, whereas many U.S. companies are really good in the U.S. market because it's a huge market. Uh, we come from a very small country, so if you have ambition, you want to build something international. And the third thing we wanted to do is we wanted to have also point-of-sale transactions on it. Um, that took a little bit longer. We started only four years ago, so it was basically 2014 that we did our first test with physical terminals in store, but if you see where we took that with companies like Nike, all US and European volume on it, uh, that, that became a significant part of our business. More than 10% is on point of sale. And so at, at the beginning, those first few years, who was, who was open to a solution like that? Who was open to someone who'd come in and not just say, I'm uh, going to process a few credit cards for you, but I can really help you drive this whole process in a much more faster, efficient way? Yeah, so that, that is really weird how that panned out because if you, build, if you feel you build a superior system, the ones who are going to benefit from that are the ones who do many transactions per second because they can measure and they can see, wow, these guys do 1.5% or 150 base points more authorizations. That is, that, is, that is amazing. Whereas small companies, if you do three transactions a month, you don't see the difference. So our target group was the high end and we always focused on the high end. But your first customer, it's not going to be Uber. It, it has to be smaller. So we struggled a little bit with that. But what happened is that the casual gaming, so not betting, but really uh, games you play, that because we had the most uh, modern APIs and we could, could create the experience for the shopper that you could within the game do the payment, whereas before you were redirected to a payment page and it all looked uh, very bad. And that doesn't really work if you're in a in a in a, in a virtual environment. Yeah. So uh, so we started with casual gaming, uh, that were our first customers, and especially Germany. So not even in the Netherlands where we started ourselves. So they were international merchants, uh, casual gaming that got it started. They built a company, My City Deal, that later was sold to Groupon, and Groupon was the big thing at the time. Um, and we were rolling out with them globally. So they would go to Brazil and say, Adjen, make sure it works. And we would go to Brazil and we had an office there and we made everything work. Uh, so that, that's a customer that helped us grow internationally a lot. And, and then as you got traction with these, these, these sort of newer forms of companies, these up and coming, up and coming companies themselves, at what point did finally it start to click with maybe sort of more incumbent or more traditional companies that, hey, we think, yeah, this could uh, change the game for us? Um, the, the, I think it, uh, for the more traditional companies, it became when we started to become active in, in retail, fashion retail. We were looking at a certain point and say everything we saw for online, which is that by one connection to Adyen, basically you can work in many different countries. 
the point of sale terminal should be the same. And the point of sale, so that's the brick in the store, the black box, um, that somehow the French one wouldn't work in the US. Uh, whereas you could see the trend, these are becoming internet devices and they should have all payment methods on it. So um, when we start developing that and suddenly we could work with companies like Burberry and they were for the for those terminals we're working with maybe 22 different banks and when it could severely reduce that list um, that's when it started clicking more in the retail and the established companies and less in the, in the online players only uh, also with airlines we saw a similar trend we have we have a huge number of airlines on our platform and so uh, the kind of the picture I'm getting from this is you know a company that's that's sort of seeing the opportunities as they become evident you know, internally, did you have kind of a master plan? Had you thought this all out in a rational way? Or was it a case of uh, you made a connection to the fashion industry, you realized this was a big potential market and you, you sort of adapted to move into it? Or um, was there a master plan kind of along the way? A lot of things we developed was just quick reaction to what was going on. So the innovation there is basically being a quick reactor to what's going on and making the, the, the right choice there. We always develop things which can be used by multiple merchants, so we avoid customization and we make sure that we use our engineers to the benefit of all or a subset of all, but not to a single merchant. So that was one of the rules. We have few examples of truly visionary stuff. Um, Point of sale is an exception to that. Point of sale is really that we said, I can see where this is going. Point of sale terminals are becoming internet devices. And everything we solved for online is happening on the terminal. Now, if you buy, if you walk into uh, many of our customers, you can pay with Alipay in Sweden. Uh, so suddenly the travelers can, uh, can use their, their, their preferred payment method. That, that was... That was, I think that was visionary. Yeah. Um, it wasn't my idea, so that's also easy to say. And so the other thing that strikes me about this, so again, the founding going back to 2006, you know, compared to where we are looking around Slush, where European tech community is today, it was quite a different story back then. Uh, as you're building the second time around, you had the advantage of having credibility. You had a track record of having built, had a successful exit um, so you had a certain advantage there. But even so, what was it like trying to raise money uh, in those first few years uh, as you were trying to get this company off the ground? Yeah, so our, uh, the first capital we provided, we provided ourselves, so that's how we started. And then we got a few, not really angels, but these were people from our network. Some of them were involved with Bibit, and they invested... Uh, they invested some money to get us through the first years. As we were quite successful, already in 2011 we were profitable and then we hadn't raised the formal round yet. Um, what then happened is that because of my experience in the past, I was okay with funding, but I was not okay with a non-executive board where where the, where the board members were actually investors because that's not an independent board member 
so I didn't want board members at the time and I did not want any preferences in the contract uh, like uh, liquidation preference, uh, minimum returns, uh, um, right of first refusal if we would do another funding round. And actually nobody was interested therefore to, uh, to invest in us except for and it's a little bit of a longer story I'll do the short version but at a certain point I was meeting with Index and also they weren't all that interested and I said that's funny because I train I, I have a background on the commercial side and there's always a deal to be done and you could say this deal is not very interesting so I walk away from it but what I think is, is not so well done is that you as an investor don't try to do a deal because you can always say I think the valuation is too high uh, I get, don't get enough rights so I walk away but you say that it's not okay but maybe maybe we ask a very low uh, company valuation so how do you know why do how could you walk away i would never allow my commercial team to do that and that ended up in a transaction in 2011 yeah a kind of a well i legendary might be too strong a water but certainly it's become a it's sort of a in the european tech scene kind of a, a pivotal uh investment i think also for index because it's the first time for them that they did a common stock deal where if the founders would next day sell the company for less they would make a loss next day there was no protection at all no board seat Um, and they have done more of that after that they said we should choose good teams and all that protection and all that stuff let's just cut it out now coming jumping ahead a little bit um, looking at the years let's say the two years preceding your IPO in 2018 uh, I mean, we learned when you guys filed for the IPO that your your growth had really begun to accelerate. How did you sort of manage that? Did it feel overwhelming? Did you had to really shift the way you were managing the company? It didn't feel overwhelming. For us, it felt fairly steady growth. Um, also, if you look at how the company um, how the company expanded, it's in percentage very consistently. Uh, also a number of people it's a consistent growth but we never felt we could grow with if you have a team of five people in a country you cannot add five people overnight to it let alone 10 so probably a proper growth there is like adding three four people to the team it's a maximum you can go but the year after if you start with nine you probably could grow to 15 so we felt there's a certain pace at which we can grow so they want to speak to knowledgeable people we don't want engineers working on the system that are untrained. So everybody we hire, it takes about a year before people become productive. Yeah. So that is, uh, that is a huge investment. So we, we didn't know how to go faster. And still we feel we are growing at maximum pace. But having then taken a, a more external investment, I mean, was there some kind of pressure? I mean, so much, again, my, my, my perspective is coming from the Valley, but there's so much cultural pressure to grow as big as fast as possible to win whatever market you're pursuing so did you feel that externally someone saying you know why aren't you going faster i have been called uh very slow i have been called that i run a pension fund for my children stuff like that so yes we got criticized for our pace of execution i must say the shareholder who did that was very kind and he said peter I eat my words. That was wrong. So, but it has to do with the game. We are in a game where 
true knowledge of the payments is important, but the result, if you want to go as deep into payments as we do and not just launch a flashy interface, raise a lot of capital and do a great marketing story with it, that, that's easy. But going deep, that's solving the hard problems. And we felt there would be huge return for solving the hard problems. And of course, you know, without naming names, I mean, I think Silicon Valley is, let's say, going through a bit of corrective in in having put too much flash over the substance or over the longer term uh, foundational building of startups that then, in a sense, I think, raised too much, got ahead of themselves. Uh, you know, again, I won't name any names, but certainly it seems like there's a moment of reflection happening there. It's very easy to be critical about Silicon Valley. Then we say we fly under the radar, but we are not flying under the radar. We have just no idea how to get more attention. Right. And then by the time that we have some good customers on it and the story sort of works, we raise capital and then we go out to the market. Suddenly eBay said no to PayPal and yes to Adyen. Suddenly uh, we were a public company. But as you build it out from the core, it wasn't so suddenly. It was suddenly visible to the outside world. Whereas American companies sometimes claim a market space, make a big claim, raise a lot of capital and build it outside in. But that strategy is also valid and has proven for many companies that it works uh, great. But there are wild pivots. If you look at a company which I really admire, uh, Square, it's a pivot. At a certain point, you had many talented people and a great company. But uh, this pivot has worked out very well for them. Um, but that's an example of where everything is in place. Uh, and, then you, and then you build an excellent product. It's yeah. the other way around. So we talked a little bit, mentioned very briefly the IPO last year, obviously a big milestone, but it was also interesting to note that in terms of your internal and external communication around the events, um, it seemed like you all really made an effort to kind of, I won't say downplay it, but really put it in perspective of both for the employees and, and your public communications about what it meant and then also how you were actually executing the IPO. That um, sounds like it really came out of that same culture that you're, you've been describing. We are working on a, on, a, on a plan where it's much more important where we are seven years from today. If you feel that the setup which we had with uh, being private and having investors on board who on theory made a lot of money but have no liquidity... For us, we felt going public is a great way that everybody can choose for themselves and was less friction than the alternatives, which could have been uh, changing, in public, changing private investors for other investors. Uh, but then we felt we also had engineers, first employees who invested in the company, and we wanted to give them same rights. Uh, so then going public seemed logical. But for us, it's just another step and a change of shareholders on a, on, on a much longer path. So you, you don't see, I don't see it as an exit, nor do my other early employees or founders see it. And it's also the same team. We didn't change. It's just we're, we're moving on. So what I said to people is like, look, we have currently shareholders. You don't know them. I do. After this IPO, we still have shareholders. You don't know them. Neither do I. That, that's, the, that's the real change that we have. We are highly regulated, as a finance company should be. We have the full revenue of our merchants. So from a regulatory point of view, the delta was not so significant. So 
you mentioned the seven-year horizon that you're sort of thinking about. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about then the vision going forward, but maybe a place to start is a recent announcement you had about issuing cards. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Because my, my limited understanding of that, it seems to fit more into, again, uh, this category of you guys having a vision to do something versus uh, grabbing an opportunity that just happened to kind of come your way. That's that's the right way of looking at it. There, there, we service marketplaces. We service online uh, travel agents. And the problem they're facing is, say that you're an online travel agent and you have hotels all over the world, which you need to pay for because you took the funds from the consumer, the traveler, and now you need to pay out to the hotel. How do you effectively get money from, say, your U.S. company? How do you effectively get that to, to all countries in Latin America? That's expensive to do bank transfers internationally. So there, a virtual card, a card that we issue, can be really useful because then you deposit the funds on a virtual card. So it has just the 16 digits. And then what the hotel, hotelier does is he enters the code on his PIN terminal manually and then he gets settled into his bank. So that's a typical use of a, uh, of a, of a, of a virtual card that we issue. Or think about the courier services that pick something up and pay for on your behalf. You don't want those couriers to walk around with standard credit cards. You want to, as a, as a merchant, so we would, for example, work with Glovo, you want to issue that courier with a card which, can, which has all sorts of restrictions on it. Uh, so what sort of uh, things can be bought with it or a geo uh, limit, uh, limiter on it that it can only be used in a certain uh, in a certain area to avoid fraud and to be able to uh, uh, to efficiently run that. If our merchants, which are already our merchants for pay-in, also want to use us to settle to their sellers, to settle to their hotels, um, then it's very logical for us to develop that. So that are typical user cases that we do it for. It's not the intention that in your wallet there's uh, there's also a green Adyen branded card. Uh, so consumers, loans, no. This is about preloaded uh, debit cards uh, for for that our merchants use to deal with their uh, with their partners. And so, do you see this looking out long term being a big piece of business for you, or is it a sort of more servicing uh, and and deliver, sort of delivering a new convenience to the people you're working with? What happened is that. The marketplaces became a significant business for us. And eBay is, of course, one that everybody talks about uh, when, we, uh, when that became a customer, when that company became a customer. And um, to extend our offering for marketplaces is very logical. And that marketplaces are significant for us. Uh, this product is now early days. We are working with, uh, with a few merchants already. And, uh, of course, we start those initiatives because we think it will be material. But on the other hand, everything is growing within Adyen. So you have to, uh, you have to compete with point of sale that is, that is running very well. You have to compete with online. So uh, um, in, in percentage, that's very difficult to say. And so, again, you mentioned this uh, seven-year horizon. I mean, is that an official internal sort of benchmark that you've started to use? And, and how do you kind of now start to maybe more formally think about, you know, your outlook, your long-term planning? Seven years is 
you have to say something because otherwise people don't know what you mean. If you say long term and, and some people might think 18 months, that's a long time. Um, therefore, we, we say let's have a rolling window of seven years. Our, is what we develop today going to benefit our merchants seven years from today? Or are we just doing stuff for short term gains, which we are not that interested in? Also, you have to say something about where do you think the company can grow. I think we can be the largest in this area. Right now, the largest in this area probably does a trillion in process volume. We do over 200 billion. Uh, so that's about a factor five. Because you cannot say to an engineer, you have to develop this and we're going to do much more. That doesn't say anything, but uh, she or he wants to know, if you say much more, if I develop this in such a way that it can do 10 times current volume, is that sort of a right time to revisit this? Or should it be 20 times or three times? So you have to give a certain guideline, but everything is an, a direction. So the direction is we should be the largest. The direction is think where we are in seven years. And, and, and that helps people. And was that, an, again, an intentional shift to move away from, uh, you know, the, the culture we were sort of describing to say, okay, now let's, let's figure out at least some kind of structure, some sort of process to help us to begin thinking more proactively about where we want to be, whatever the horizon is, seven years, uh, and, and, and how did you sort of go about putting that in place? If you look at the first information memorandum, which we wrote for the angels, it is wildly ambitious because we say this is, we don't want to be a local player. This is about a huge game and it's going to be high, high risk, high return. And it panned out that way. So we all knew that we were, we already had a company and that company was, was successful. We sold it at the time for a hundred million. Uh, when we saw that in 2004, that is when you now sell at a billion. Uh, that was like, at that time, 100 million was the unicorn level and people were looking for an exit. We were not ready to watch the same movie again. We wanted to use the lessons learned and do something way bigger. So uh, the ambition level was really very, very high. So we didn't really change that. I think if you would have asked us in 2007, what do you want to do? Said so we should be the largest company in this area. And so maybe one last area to talk about, you know, you guys have gone from being, um, you know, the small company looking up to some degree. There's still, you mentioned someone doing a trillion dollars. So there's still someone that you're looking up and you're trying to catch and surpass. And at the same time, the nature of these things always is that there's other little companies around your heels, uh, you know, looking at what you're doing and thinking, I think we could do it better than what they're doing. Now, you said earlier the strategy has not been to acquire or, or try to pick off some of these companies. That's obviously one thing that, that an incumbent will do at some point is they see someone maybe is going to disrupt their business and they pull them in. But how, how do you sort of track those potential up-and-comers and how do you think about um, how you, you, you stay ahead of them? We took a radical approach there. We are interested to talk to our merchants. So we have a, a network of account managers. We work in, we call work streams, where, where account managers, product people, salespeople, engineers, 
all work together on specific topics to make sure that we are very, very fast in getting new things to the market. And we rather spend our time there than looking around to what everybody else is doing and seeing if, uh, if we should do that as well. We feel that by that strategy, you will also pick up on merchants that say, look, a card issuing is an example. Look, I'm, I'm now thinking about integrating somebody else for card issuing, but I'd rather work, work with you. Is it something you considered? If you have those short lines and the open discussion, then it will come to you that way. And then you don't need to make a true analysis. So we do very little of that uh, analysis with all the competitors, their moves. Uh, and in this industry, we all know each other. So I know that from from Klarna, from 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 which is more payment method, by the way, but uh, than than a payments com- than a payment service provider like we are. But you know, I know the, the people from all the CEOs around us. We know actually each other quite well. Um, but I don't want to engage in, uh, <laughs> in 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 mergers, partnerships, stuff like that. Nor do I really study their companies. Very good. Well, Peter, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I hope you have a great couple of days here at Slush, and we really appreciate you sitting down and chatting with us. Well, thank you. It was a great talk.